Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly. We're talking today with Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist at the Luthold Group. Jim's going to talk to us about uh, these financial markets, which got a little bit wonky uh, starting in 2022. Uh, we don't know where to put our money or if we should put our money anywhere, uh, but um, I'm guessing Jim's got all the answers. Uh, Bruce, what do we want to know from Mr. Paulson? Well, Jim, it's it's uh, so great to have you back on the Investment News Podcast. Well, I appreciate the invite. I always enjoy a visit with you guys. You were here last in September, I believe, and at the time we were kind of talking about your your perspective on an on you know the appropriate way to measure the price to earnings ratio, and you have a little different historical take on that yep. than most yep. people. Um, if people want to go back and listen to that podcast, it was back in September, so about four months, four or five months ago. And um, right now, we wanted to ask you about the crazy start of the year for the markets. Um, it looks like. I mean, I track the S&P 500. I'm just a basic guy. Jeff, my colleague, Jeff Benjamin over here, the professor, he has, you know, his eye on all the different indexes, the small, you know, the Russell 2000 and the, and, and, and the Dow and, and, and the like. Um, but the S&P, I think, was down, what, 10, 11% um, at one point for January. And it was a, it, the month of January was bad. Uh, the worst month, I think, since for the for stocks since uh, March 2020, the start of the pandemic. There's all kinds of reasons, right? People are afraid of rising interest rates. Um, people are also taking some chips off the table. Um, and some of the pandemic darlings don't look so darling anymore, I think. So I, I know you, you focus on broad market trends, Jim. Uh, what's your thinking about what happened in, in January and where does that leave us right now in, in, as we call February? You know, I think the biggest reason that we had a correction, I'm not even sure we've actually had a correction in the S&P 500 yet, at least from close to close. We've had an interday. Interday correction, uh, right. Interday correction, but not a close to close. But, but the certainly the broader market has experienced that. And uh, I think the biggest reason is we're just overdue for one. I mean, it would have found its own reason. It happened to be the Fed, but it would have found its own reason um, at, at some point anyway. I actually thought, you know, we, we, I thought we'd, we'd have one last year. Um, it, it was already long in the tooth, really, ever since last summer. And as far as historically uh, going this long without one, and I've actually, you know, uh, I think it might not be the only one this year. We could rally off this and maybe even have another one before the year is out. Who knows? But, but um, I think that's the biggest reason is just uh, going without one for, for this long. And you, know, you can point whenever you get into correction, I think there's always reason. So you always see all guys like me, we always have the reason, right? Um, but I'm, I think a lot of times it's just more, it's uh, time for one. And, uh, you know, so you end up, you end up getting it. Now, there's certainly concerns today. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's, it's probably the Fed more than anything. Um, if the Fed, you know, announces that they're going to turn to tightening for the first time in this recovery, and that often leads to corrections uh, when the Fed first changes its stripes from accommodation to, to tightening. And, um, 
this year, really, at least since early last year, um, every time we had a Fed meeting, the market would struggle and then generally get better after it. And this one started about a week before the Fed meeting and has continued uh, really after the Powell's press conference, which was sort of reinforced that they're going to get more hawkish. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, for me, I don't know how low this thing has to go before it bottoms out. Um, my guess, if you say what's your guess, my guess is that the low was in a week ago Monday, uh, the intraday low, but we'll see if that holds. We, you know, we're, we're struggling as we talk here into the close today after the right. uh, meta earnings announcement. So I, I kind of think that there's been fear about the Fed in particular for some time. People have had time to vet that. It's not coming out of left field or anything. We went into this with very low consumer confidence already. And the scarier corrections to me are the ones where everyone feels fantastic about life. Confidence is really high. And then something comes out of left field that no one expected. That's not what's happened here. I also think that the fundamentals under all this remain really strong. I mean, balance sheets, household and, and company balance sheets remain very, very strong. Some of the strongest balance sheets this far into recovery that I can recall in my entire my entire uh, career, not only just uh, equitized, but also very liquid um, with very low debt servicing ratios and the like. But then on top of that, we just got really solid economic growth across the spectrum. I think it's going to still grow probably north of 4% in real terms uh, this year. And that means earnings are going to continue to climb. And, and I think that's going to be a fundamental backdrop that uh, probably is going to eventually reverse this correction and move it on to higher highs. Yeah, I think the thing that was interesting, and I know Jeff has commented on this, um, is the kind of the, the whipsaw movement, right, in, in, in the markets. I think that was unusual. That kind of, that kind of snapped people <laughs> to attention. I think that that was one of the characteristics of investing in January that that, you know, troubled a lot of people, I think, Jim. Yeah, I, I think that's true, particularly the intraday movements, you know, right. uh, we're, we're, we're just kind of breathtaking. There's always something new in every cycle. But really what you're talking about, Bruce, is, is simply VIX, VIX volatility. And, you know, I, I recently wrote a piece here called the uh, Correction Triage Trilogy. And my point in the piece was we've we've done kind of the normal things you want to do for a correction to end it. And I think first thing you have to do is you got to grab investors' attention. And I think we did that last week when the VIX uh, at one point almost reached 40 and stayed above 30 for a few trading days. It's been above 20 almost the entire time. That captures that intention. And the second thing we did was we scared people that if you look at a AAII bull to bear felt and is still at one of its lowest levels historically it's ever been at it's it's only been lower than this about 10 percent of the time we had a, a pretty big collapse here or that and then lastly i think what's important for me is that fundamentals have remained very strong so if you look at credit spreads they're, they're remaining very tight compared to historic norms and if i have created fear brought on by uh you know scary volatility and but i have fundamentals that won't give way. I love credit spreads that won't blow out. Um, I think that's a nice combo that you're getting closer to the end of this uh, overall. But I, I think volatility is always what starts a correction, always gets people's attention, always scares them. 
this one had its own particular intraday characteristics, but it's pretty similar to the past. And we don't have like back in the the, the two big ones. Um, I mean, the three big ones that I've lived through as a journalist, right? 2000, 2008, and then 2020. Um, those character, you know, 2020 was the pandemic and the, everything shutting down. 2008 was real estate and 2000 was a tech bubble. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that you can point to something uh, right now that's on the magnitude of any of those three issues. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so at this point. I, I think, you know, what you have to ask yourself as an investor is, do you think the economic cycle, the economic expansion is at risk of ending anytime soon? That's the real issue. Right. And to, to me, because if it is, then, then this thing's a bear market problem. I mean, if, if this is going to be a cycle ender that we're heading into, and that's why the market's coming off, then then this is going to be a bear market. It's probably going to be more than 20% in the economy headed to recession. I don't think that's likely. And if it's not likely, then you rarely have a bear market without a recession. It's possible we have, but they're very rare. You know, we've right. had, I think, mm -hmm. 25 corrections and 10 bear markets since 1952. And um, this would be you know 26th correction if that's what we're into here. They're so, they're very, very common. That's just part and parcel of bull markets is having corrections along the way. But they're really difficult to call because you got to, you got to, call when they start <laughs> and when they end you can't just make one good call you got to make two or it really isn't worth it and, I, and so i i try to play them sometimes when i think i got to beat on it a little bit at the margin but i never bet too much as long as i continue to believe that the economic expansion and thereby the bull market is still in force and that's kind of how i look at this here i think this is more about a bull market correction than a bear market ender and in that regard, I'd be thinking more about what, how, where, what I want to own to come out of this. Because just to give you a couple of those 25 previous corrections we've had since 1952, the average gain one year after the correction low is, is almost 25% in the, in, the, in, the, in the coming year after the correction low. Right. Go, going into this correction at, at pretty close to record low consumer confidence. If you look at low confidence corrections, we don't have a lot of those, but the ones we've had, uh, the one year forward recovery from those, that correction, those corrections was almost 33% in the following year. So I'd rather think about, uh, you know, if we're down roughly 10% or closing in on the S&P, we're down much more than that in small and mid caps. And, you know, overall, I'd be thinking about, you know, being closer to the end of this than necessarily early at this point. Jeff, what do you got for Jim? Jim, how you doing? Uh, the thing that's interesting to me is is how similar this uh, January period looks to March of 2020, where uh, it was it was kind of drastic and, and volatile, but it was the the recovery was pretty quick. And the difference between now and March of 2020 is in March of 2020, we were dealing with this incredible unknown of a global pandemic. And you know, all we knew at that time was that it was it was bad. We didn't know how bad it was gonna get. But we're two years into this thing now. And as you said, all the fundamentals look strong, but this correction, I don't even know, I mean, the S&P there, it's only down 3% right now for the year. So 
I think you can, like you said, you can kind of move past it. I mean, Gosh. we're getting these little baby corrections that are down 10% and then two weeks later down 3%. I mean, what fun is that? Don't we need an actual <laughs> kind of pullback of some sort here to, to, to clean things up? We've had more than you think in here. I mean, this thing really in my book goes back to the end of August, September, because that's when fears about the Fed changing its stripes started to mm -hmm. surface. And we had a, you know, a fairly decent pullback and, September rallied another one in November it rallied and then this one. So we've been kind of doing this for months and, and really the S and P is the least affected. We, we, if you go broader right. into small caps or, or international or broader marketplace, it'd be a lot of areas there are down much more over that period of time, many of them in bear market territory. So there's been a lot of carnage. We've certainly done some correction things we, and we've done what correction have done. We've improved the valuation. We've now sort of removed some of the concentrated leadership technology or new era, which mm -hmm. builds up, makes the market vulnerable. We've got checked sentiment. We've created more pessim pessimists that are thinking about things that could go wrong. Uh, overall, we've responded a little bit to the fact that rates are higher. We've improved valuations because earnings have continued to rise while we've kind of gone sideways to south. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that you need a correction for to correct, quote unquote, has happened. Maybe not since Jan just since in this one, but over the course of the, over the course of the last several months, you know, that's been going on. I think the biggest catalyst, which all goes all the way back to September here, is the Fed. And I've just mm -hmm. been impressed by how much incredible anxiety there's been about the Fed. And I get why. <laughs> because they've, you know, this has been such an outsized Fed policy. Uh, but to me, typically the market doesn't get into a lot of trouble the first time the Fed tightens for the first time. Oh, in this case, having done that, just thinks about tightening for the first time. Normally, it takes several tightenings by the Fed over a matter of a long, maybe even a few years before the market and the recovery finally falters, if you will. So I think there's just been a huge overreaction to the impact that that's going to have. We also, I think, are over giving the Fed too much power here. You know, we say, well, gee, you know, back in the last 20 years when the Fed would raise rates, it'd have a temper tantrum and the you know, market fall apart. Well, we're not, we don't live in that world anymore. We used to, in the last 20 years, we grew real GDP around 2% per annum close to the 2% stall speed. And heck, in that world where inflation is virtually zero and you're only growing at 2% in real terms, if the Fed even thinks about raising rates, it's, it can be a damaging event. But that's not the world we're in today. We're in a world where there's so much liquidity, the, the, the rates are lower than they've ever been in U.S. history. I don't think it's going to have near the impact that people are subscribing to. But Jim, the, the thing that's different this time, as I see it, in relation to the Fed movement is inflation and, and inflation is real. You don't hear people talking about it much because more people are talking about the markets now, but inflation is still at a 40 year high. And most people who know their history know what that leads to. And that's extreme fed policy. That might be to me, what people are, are fretting about when they talk about the fed, right? Yeah, I, I think you're right. But I, I think that's way overblown, too, is what I guess I'm getting at, is that normally inflation shows up later in a cycle because the economy eventually uses up all the available resources. And later in cycle, you get a pickup in, in price pressures, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it typically happens. 
This one, it happened almost immediately. And I think it's because it didn't come necessarily from the demand side. It came from the supply side that was totally shut down from the get-go across the globe. That's a very different inflation environment than we've been used to in the post-World War demand-driven uh, uh, inflation issues that we've had. This is something to remember. We get an inflation burst early in the cycle, not late in the cycle. We got it right mm -hmm. out of the gates. Um, that's what we used to have, by the way, most of the time in U.S. history. If you go back into the late 1800s, all the way up to World War II, we regularly had big bursts of inflation almost in every recovery that we ever had that came early in the cycle. And then inflation would moderate later in the cycle. And that was because most, most of those were supply-driven problems that we used to have. We haven't had this for a while. And this one has a very noticeable reason. And it's very likely that as the pandemic moves from, uh, or moves from pandemic to endemic, that a lot of those issues are going to get better. Well, one of the reasons you to be optimistic later this year is that inflation could well come down and that may allow the Fed to slow down. Yeah, I guess that's one theory. But, you know, rates are at zero. It seems like we need some Fed policy, don't we? Oh, yeah. I, I, no, I, I think rates are going to go up. I think bond yields are going to go up this year. But, uh -huh. you know, of late, there's been a, you know, there's been a competition on Wall Street to see who can forecast the most fund rates hikes this year. Right. Expectation for rate hikes have gone, you know, from three to as many as seven. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me when LeBron James, you know, joined the Miami Heat or in the big three, the pomp and circumstances didn't end with LeBron's the decision to take his town selfies. James and his co-stars, you know, held a pep rally style introduction where James said the Heat would win not one, not two, not three, not four, but seven titles. It seems like that's what Wall Street's doing. We're discounting, you know, not not just you know, maybe three hikes this year or, or, you know, the bond yield going up to two and a quarter or two and a half. And we're thinking this whole thing's going to, you know, be a bloody mess before the year's out. We'll be at a three and a half percent funds rate before the year's over. I just think we're way, way ahead of ourselves. And that's part of what's in this market right now. That's the headline for your next um, investor note, I think. It is. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be in one. I, it just, I, I just felt like it's the same thing over again. Uh, you know, and let's not forget the Fed decision, quote unquote, was also announced uh, with much pomp and circumstance at a televised press conference. Very similar to the LeBron's the decision. So, And j just, just because we're talking about your investor note and, and we just want to give you a little plug, I, I get it every week or you write a couple sometimes in the week, two or three mm -hmm. sometimes notes in a week. How can people um, who are listening get your investor note? Do they go to the lutholdgroup.com? Yeah. yeah, if you go to www.lutholdgroup.com, then there's information there on how you can sign up for the Paulson Perspective. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm writing a little bit. That'll be for next week, a little bit about, I guess what I found here, guys, is that here this year, that economic policy and certainly index um, has just skyrocketed off the charts. And that, to me, is the escalation of Fed fear. And it's, it's higher right now. The only time it's ever been higher is immediately after the pandemic hit. It's still higher than 98% of the time since 1985, that index. And here's what you find out is that when, when, this, when there's great fear about economic policy, which is where we have today, those end up resulting in some of the best stock market outcomes. When you really have risk in the stock market is when there's complacency about economic policy. 
when there's no fear at all. And we typically have corrections in bear markets. Um, the, the four bear markets that we've had since 1985, for example, have all occurred when economic policy uncertainty was quite low, not when it's sky high like it is today. And I do think that in some sense, uh, extreme Fed consternation and all the discussion about it is acting as a huge wall of worry under the stock market um, and might mm. well be a supporting force for it rather than something that's going to be destructive. What, what's your uh, outlook for rates? I think that economic growth is going to be four to four and a half percent in real terms. I think inflation will moderate to about three, three and a half percent by the end of the year. So we're going to have a really strong nominal year of growth. I think it'll push up rates. I think the 10 year might end the year closer to 235 to 2.5%. I uh -huh. think the funds rate probably ends up uh, around 1% or thereabouts by the end of the year. So yeah, I, I expect those to go up. But but the reason they're going up and the reason the Fed turns almost in every cycle to tightening is because the economy is good enough to handle it. Typically it is until later on after they've been tightening for a long time. These big policy mistakes that people kept bringing up about the Fed, I, I, I can't think of one recently where they've, they overreacted and shut it down you know, prematurely. I don't think usually it's much later in the recovery cycles. It, it, two things are true. The Fed is always going to turn to tightening in every recovery, and eventually the Fed will kill the recovery. Both of those are true, but they don't generally happen, uh, the kill part, until much later. And a lot of the thought on, on, uh, in the investment market at the moment is as though the Fed, by even thinking of raising rates, is going to kill this thing off. Mm -hmm. And rates are going to go up, but that doesn't mean it gets killed. And they probably go up in stair-step fashion. If we've noticed, Bond yields went up to 185, 190, and now they've been trading in that area for the last three weeks, taking a little powder. They probably have another leg up later. And eventually we might get up towards two and a half percent. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't do it all in one month, I think the stock market will hang in there as well as the economy. Well, this is also uh, probably good news for bond investors, right? It's been a been a long, slow, painful run for for fixed income. Yeah, and I don't know if that's over. I mean, ultimately, I think we've got, my, my, my guess, my best guess is we've got multiple years left in this recovery, not just one or two years, but probably more like three or four. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think if it, that real growth is average, going to average 3% after this year and nominal growth averages three or we'll have 6% nominal. And I think with 3% inflation, I think we're going to see the 10-year treasury and the funds rate maybe get up pretty close to 4% at the terminal high rate for this cycle before it's over. So there could be a lot of damage yet in uh, bonds. But again, I don't think that's going to necessarily happen all in, 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 in one year. Uh, overall. And certainly one of the reasons that I think you want to maybe stay more inclined to stocks a little bit here is because bonds are truly the asset that's really overpriced, probably much more so than bond, much more than the stock market mm -hmm. uh, overall. The thing that might help us though, is to the extent that inflation, as I mentioned earlier, is more about supply chain issues and the pandemic related. We could have a situation maybe this year, maybe even next year, where inflation does start to moderate and people start to go, hey, you know, gosh sakes, rather than inflation picking up in the third year of the recovery, inflation starts to moderate in the third year of recovery. It'd be very foreign from what we're used to. 
And if we have that at the same time that real growth and earnings of companies and fundamentals remain solid, and we now have decelerating inflation, then all of a sudden bond yields, these people's forecast of super high yields, you know, escalating higher to shut off inflation pressure, go by the wayside. And people start to scale back rate hikes and how fast the Fed has to move along. And consumer confidence is so low right now, it could start to climb finally. And the two things that have scared confidence has been the pandemic and inflation. And we might have both of those improve quite a bit this year. All right. Well, you're very optimistic. I'll give you that. <laughs> well, well, I always love Jim's historical perspective. Um, and go. I, I think it's really interesting, this notion that the inflation that we've had this time around is, is more akin to pre-World War II type of inflation, Jim, right? Which is at the start of a recovery because the, there's not a lot of people out there making or delivering things, or there's fewer than fewer of those kinds of people out there than we need. I think that in more recent years, we got better dealing with inventory because technology has allowed us to do that and the like. And so we stopped having supply chain problems at the start of every recovery. But you go back prior to World War II, Bruce, and when you had a recession, companies across the country would just cut to the bone right. to survive, right? To survive, survival of recession. We used to have recession, by the way, half the time prior to World War II in this country. So uh, they, they didn't just manage inventories. They just, they just tried to, they went into survival mode. We didn't do that until the pandemic. But the pandemic hit and every company in the world went into survival mode. They weren't just adjusting for a recession. They went, oh my gosh, how do I survive a pandemic? Right. I'm going to cut operations to the absolute bone. I'm going to operate at minimum cost so I can get have the longest survivability. But when you do that, and then you give them a post-war boom instead of mm-hmm. a depressionary bust, supply chains are woefully behind. And so inflation is not, I don't think, an inherent sustainable force here. And I think disinflation is going to return. And that right now, if it does, with elevated real growth, you know, that could be sort of interesting, particularly when you've got a mindset right now that's very scared. Maybe I'm all wrong in this, guys. It won't be the first time, believe me. And this <laughs> correction could certainly go lower right now. No doubt about that. But that's kind of where I'm leaning. And I, I just would challenge people to try to fight the urge to get too conservative. All right. Jeff, anything else for Jim? Yeah. Well, one more thing. If uh, if you're up for it, Jim, uh, <laughs> when is... Uh, When's my Bitcoin going to turn around, man? I'm taking a beat in there. Come on. I'm trying to buy a small island, and uh, I'm not going to afford half of it. I do think Bitcoin's going to make it. Uh, I really do. But, I, you know, it's not foremost in my mind or anything at the moment. I, it's really hard to see where this will shake out in terms of how it relates to other assets. The reason I've been mostly interested in Bitcoin, I haven't been able to use it because we can't. There's no ETF in the ETF portfolio I manage except for the futures ETF, and it has too much hair on it for me. But I wanted to use it because of its extreme volatility, because I did a study back in 2020 that you could add a little Bitcoin to your portfolio, uh, say 2%, and just put an automatic rule on. If it goes up to 3%, you trade 1% out. If it goes down to 1%, you add 1% back. And because of its extreme volatility, you could add to your return over time. And because it had low covariance to the stock market, you could lower your, your risk while raising your return. I don't really go much beyond that because I'm not, I don't think to me, Bitcoin is a, is a method of exchange, like a currency. 
I do think it's a, it's a method of transacting, and I think it will probably continue to win and, and survive because of, of its ability to do that and because of its record-keeping ability. But I'm, it's not a currency by any stretch. But the excess volatility of Bitcoin that you see today is not going to last forever. As that market becomes more liquid as it survives, if it does, then that volatility will go away. And then a lot of the reasons that I would want to own a little Bitcoin also would go away. Well, from my perspective, the volatility is what makes Bitcoin so much fun. But uh, <laughs> that's just me. I mean, I love a roller coaster ride. <laughs> Well, you know, I got a few other things that you might want to take a look at there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll talk offline. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Jim, thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Take care. All right, good stuff there from Jim Paulson. Always fun to have him on and uh, get his insights. Uh, now we're going to shift over to something in the news recently. Uh, UBS's big acquisition of Wealthfront Uh also followed almost immediately by UBS announcing or reporting their most recent earnings. And uh, Bruce, I know you've been kind of covering that. Uh, what, uh, what, what's it look like from your end? I think this is um, a really great strategic move for, for UBS. They get access to $27 billion in assets and 470,000 clients. Essentially, they're buying uh, Merrill Edge right? Their mm -hmm. version of a Merrill Edge. You know, UBS is a very high-end, high net worth, ultra high net worth, you know, financial advisor shop with around 6,000 financial advisors and real estate and expensive things like that. And this lets them have a, you know, an investment advice platform mm -hmm. that's electronic and you don't have to pay for office space. <laughs> Yeah. And you have 470,000 clients here who, you know, adopted to Wealthfront because they wanted to get away from traditional brokerage services and investment advisors. Wealthfront was launched, what, 2008, 2009? And remember, it was the big sexy thing, right? The robo advice platform, Jeff. And yeah. Everybody was going to have robo and all this. They were going to change the world and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know if they changed the world, but they definitely carved themselves out a niche. And, and, you know, the younger, uh, more tech-savvy investor. And UBS wants to get a younger, more tech-savvy clientele. Mm -hmm. Morgan Stanley did that with its acquisition of E-Trade, right? UBS is buying Wealthfront. Merrill Lynch yeah. has Merrill Edge. Wells Fargo has an online platform, but it's not nearly as big or splashy as, as E-Trade or Merrill Edge or Wealthfront. Uh, I think our colleague, Sean Boom Shakalaka, uh, back in November... Mm -hmm. uh, wrote a piece saying that Wealthfront was up for sale and it was going to get around one point, it was going to fetch $1.5 billion. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that he was right. I think Bloomberg had a piece right around the same time. And uh, Sean was right because UBS paid $1.4 billion for it. And if, you, and if you look at the, I think that's an interesting price tag too, because with 27, remember we've, we've talked about this how to value RIAs. Right. Jeff. Yeah. So they have 27 billion in assets, right? So 1% mm -hmm. is your revenue number and that's 270 million. This is just back of the envelope math, right? And so you take that by about a third, you know, that's the profitability of an RIA is between 25 and 35% of revenue. 
So a third is around 90 million. And then so 90 times what, 15, 16 gets you uh, 1.4 billion, something like that. So that would be your EBITDA. So they sold at, you know, Wealthfront in the in the terms of, of how RIAs are being acquired by the big aggregators and the private equity shops right now in that range of 15 to 20 times or 15 to 18 times uh, EBITDA, as we've discussed well, before. So the math turned out perfect, I think, here for Wealthfront and for, it looks like for UBS. You got to remember too, UBS and Morgan Stanley, and I'll shut up after this point, <laughs> that, um, you know, UBS and, and Morgan Stanley, these firms, they haven't, they haven't bought anything for years, right? Because of what happened after the credit crisis, and they were overseen by the Federal Reserve. We keep talking about the Fed here on the podcast, <laughs> can't get away mm-hmm. from it. The Federal Reserve put all kinds of restraints on banks because they took federal bailout, federal government bailout money. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't do stock buybacks. Remember, you couldn't pay the dividends. And those restrictions extended to deals and deal making. The big institutions, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Merrill Lynch, they really got their, their houses together. And now they're able to go out and make these types of acquisitions, which I think is very healthy, right? Just for the broader economy and for our little financial advice industry, industry world. You know, acquisitions are good. They certainly keep things interesting. Yes. The question I have about your breakdown of the wealth front assets and price tag is it's I can see applying that to the RIA, the registered financial advisory firm that charges 1% generally, but wealth front's not charging 1%, are they? That's a that's a robo platform. They're probably probably a quarter of 1%. Right. That's no, that's a great point. That's a great point. So Um, the, the, the valuation would be even higher. Right. But you got to think that they spent a lot of many money on tech too, right? Yeah. They probably poured a ton of their revenue back into Wealthfront itself as a growth company. Yeah. And they have all this wonderful tech, right? And, yeah, and so that was part of the reason why Morgan Stanley wanted to buy E-Trade too, was for the, was for the technology. Right. Well, and that's kind of my other question. And I don't, know if it's really fair to expect you to know the answer of this to this Bruce, but <laughs> but you know i mean i mean ubs there's an end game here they didn't just buy this because they want to have a robo platform or they want to you know remember you at ubs not a u.s company um they didn't you know they're right. not looking for a they're a, a swiss US bank with a huge cohort. wealth management right. operation but in, in the United you know there's an end game here they bought a ton of assets 27 billion i think you said and right. A lot of technology that UBS probably doesn't have, so it'll be interesting to see where this thing ends up. It's not gonna, uh, you know, you know the way these guys operate, or not these these big banks. Right. This thing is gonna evolve and morph, and it'll be fun to watch. They didn't... well, think about United Capital, Jeff. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, they're not a robo; they're an advisory. Right. Right. But um, Goldman paid seven hundred and fifty million for United Capital mm-hmm. back in twenty nineteen, I believe. Um, 750, 800, something like that. And they had a similar amount of assets. It was mm-hmm. in that high 20s, if I recall. Yeah. So Wealthfront is more valuable with the same amount of assets than United Capital was at the time. Because of the, the fintech, the fintech. You know. Their fintech and also it's been almost, it's been two and a half years of private equity investors chasing these things and valuations on all types of financial services firms have have skyrocketed 
in two and no, three years. Another funny thing about that, when you think about United Capital a few years ago and uh, Wealthfront today, I guarantee you the, the demographic makeup of the client base of United Capital is starkly different from the, oh, yeah. the client base of, of Wealthfront, you know? You might have a lot of investors with smaller accounts. Oh yes, it's interesting. It's it's fun. Good good breakdown and analysis, Bruce. Thanks for that. I understand it better now. <laughs> well, Sean uh, Alaka was doing a great job on this too. So yes, I think in one of those crazy weeks when you or I were not around or whatever, mm -hmm. I had Sean on and we just kind of talked about this stuff. So I get a lot of the information from him. But I just think too, it's also the evolution. Remember these these robos were going to change the world. Right, mm -hmm. Jeff? You yeah. Remember that? And now they're just part of a huge Swiss bank. <laughs> there you go. There so you thanks. Go. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, good conversation. Um, uh, that, of course, uh, was another fun episode of the Investment News Podcast. We launch on Mondays. We want to thank our special guest, Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist for the Luthal Group. We also want to thank uh, our producer, Stephen Lamb. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com. Also, all those wonderful platforms, Apple, uh, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, even though Spotify doesn't have Neil Young and Joni Mitchell anymore. I'm bummed out about that, Jeff. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm bar I can barely sleep at night. <laughs> well, I can sleep, but I like having my Neil Young and my Joni Mitchell, you know, in my mix. I'm an old hippie like you. They're everywhere, man. You can find them other places. <laughs> Go to your go to your 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 forty five collection there in the corner. <laughs> Leave us a review about Neil Young or anything on Apple. Follow us on Spotify, please. You can reach out to Jeff, of course, and ask him about Joni Mitchell or anything on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine's at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.